You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Unlike a physician's office, emergency departments have state-of-the-art diagnostic equipment, and use of this equipment to make a diagnosis can have an enormous impact on a patient's care. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Bill Maloney, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Condell Medical Center and a partner at Infinity Healthcare. We are discussing current issues in emergency care. Welcome, Dr. Maloney. Thanks very much, Mark. Years ago, the emergency room physicians did not do a lot of suturing, a lot of procedures, and really acted more as someone who contacted the specialist to get the care for that patient. Now, in this day and age, what are the emergency room physicians trained to do? They are trained to do a lot more than what was done in the past when we were simply more of a triage officer. Emergency medicine training encompasses a lot of procedural care, and that's one of the things that attracts medical students, I think, into our specialty. We do things such as uh, intubations, central lines, chest tubes, We do more minor procedures such as drainage of abscess, uh, suturing, of course, conscious sedation for the reduction of fractures and other uh, significant procedures. We do lumbar punctures. So uh, those are all expected procedures that an emergency physician should do these days. Certainly those are all procedures that I'm very comfortable with. Is there ever a question about a line drawn where you're overextending yourself into another specialty? That does come up once in a while. Um, I think that uh, any physician needs to know his or her limits. Uh, Once in a while, we'll have an overaggressive emergency physician, and I'll hear about it from the surgeon or cardiologist or whoever it might be. And that's an educational thing that I think uh, as you get more mature in your practice, you get better at knowing your limits. Sometimes also, If I'm overwhelmed and I have uh, a significant procedure to do, I I may call in a specialist on the medical staff. If I, you know, I I don't want to abuse my colleagues, but sometimes it is in the patient's best interest if I'm faced with multiple issues in the emergency department and I know a colleague is uh, right across the street and could help us out. uh, So sometimes we do call them in for something that I typically could do on my own. Because you are doing these more advanced procedures, does that affect your personal medical liability? Uh, I suppose it does. Um, Our rates are fairly high. We're in the upper third, emergency physicians, at least in my state, for malpractice rates. I'm not sure that's as much the procedures that we do, though, as the the focus on us is getting the diagnosis correct. Um, I think that's the reason why our rates are so high. But but certainly, I think in general, the more procedures you do, your rates do tend to rise. How are you trained to do these procedures such as chest tube insertions or peritoneal lavage? Well, I spent uh, several months on uh, surgical and trauma rotations uh, uh, with uh, equal standing with my resident colleagues in general surgery, took call with them, uh, sometimes in place of them. And, uh, you know, every experience is different, but uh, I was fortunate to have experiences where the attendings would uh, turn the scalpel over to me uh, several times or the chest tube. And uh, you really you need to have those experiences if you're going to be a successful and competent emergency physician. Are all emergency physicians trained like this? Well, they're certainly supposed to be. There are 
uh, minimum numbers of procedures that are recommended by our uh, residency review committee for emergency medicine residencies. When I was doing my training uh, 16, 17 years ago, we didn't log our procedures, but in emergency medicine residence, residencies now, they do log every procedure that they do. And theoretically, a residency might withhold uh, graduating a resident if they've done, say, for instance, no lumbar punctures during the three-year training period. Would you ever go so far as to open a chest and do an open thoracotomy and cardiac massage? I actually have done that two or three times. It was always at a trauma center where the surgeon was on his or her way. And in every single case, they arrived within five minutes. One time I had the chest completely open. The other times I was in the process of opening it. That is a, a procedure that is taught in emergency medicine residencies and part of the advanced trauma life support course that most of us take. So we do do it as long as we know that there's backup. It doesn't do you any good to open up a chest if there's no one to take the patient to the operating room. But in the facilities that I was at, I knew that my backup was right around the corner. Do you always communicate with the specialists prior to doing these procedures, or do you do them first and then communicate with the specialists? Well, it's a case-by-case basis. I, I think most of our colleagues, if we had a febrile patient with a headache and stiff neck, would want us to just go ahead and do the lumbar puncture. Um, if I had a fractured uh, wrist that uh, would need reduction, I would typically call the orthopedic doctor because they're going to want to hear how displaced it is, what the angulation is, and then they would decide whether that's something I could I could handle or they would have to do on their own. So it really depends on the procedure. And in trauma situations, will you usually perform the procedure straight away without contacting the specialist? If it's uh, in, felt to be an immediate life threat, yes. Instance of a, a non-trauma pneumothorax and a stable patient, I might wait to call the specialist to see if they would want to place the chest who would want, want me. But a hypotensive patient with a gunshot to the chest, I would be putting in that chest tube and telling someone to get the trauma surgeon in there, but I'm not going to wait to talk to him or her. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me today is Dr. Bill Maloney, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Condell Medical Center. Dr. Maloney, how has technology influenced emergency room practice? Uh, there's been some great advances just in the last few years. There really have. Take abdominal pain, for instance. How many patients used to be admitted for 24 hours observation because we had no idea what their abdominal pain was caused by? And how many of those ended up going to the operating room and had a negative exploratory laparotomy, say, for uh, possible appendicitis? I believe those numbers are down with just the advent of CT scanning of the abdomen. We're much more precise in our diagnosis. Um, for chest pain patients, we have rapid bedside cardiac markers uh, that can help us diagnose a myocardial infarction, uh, even when we have a normal EKG. So those types of uh, tests have made us much more precise in our ability to get the correct diagnosis. Tell us about fast ultrasound scanning in the trauma patient. A fast scan is an examination that is a limited ultrasound exam that can be done by an emergency physician, a, a trauma surgeon, or any physician who takes the course to teach what you're looking for. And it's a, a course typically that's a, a day-long course, uh, certainly in no way covers the amount of uh, ultrasound training that a radiologist gets. But it does let us see if there's 
free fluid in the abdomen. Um, we can look at the uh, cardiac activity uh, as well as the pericardium. And in the face of a patient who is hypotensive and it's unclear where that uh, blood loss is occurring, it's very helpful because, number one, you don't have to send the patient a CT scan where they may be unmonitored or not monitored as closely. Uh, number two, they don't need a diagnostic peritoneal lavage, which is invasive. And uh, so it's really become part of the protocols for advanced trauma care. When it's the middle of the night and you have a CAT scan done on a patient, does a radiologist look at the CAT scan or do you? Uh, reading CAT scans has not traditionally been part of emergency medicine residencies. Uh, we do look at them, but we're not tested or felt to be qualified to read CT scans. I would not send a patient home with a headache who had not had a, a, a CT scan of the brain read by a radiologist. Um, so at most institutions, our radiology colleagues will read them either in the hospital or uh, via uh, digital equipment from home or sometimes from uh, countries overseas um, uh, who provide nighttime coverage. Could you expand upon that? As uh, the radiology specialty has become a specialty where there's a, somewhat of a manpower issue, it's becoming difficult for some radiology practices to provide nighttime coverage, especially because of the fact that our nights in the emergency department are not sleepy anymore. We're ordering CT after CT scan, and uh, our radiology colleagues are having to be up most of the night. Sometimes they find it more cost-effective to form an arrangement with a group that provides nighttime coverage. These groups are typically located in um, places around the globe, such as Australia or India, where that part of the day um, they are awake while our um, radiologists are sleeping and can more easily provide uh, uh, concurrent readings. And uh, those services are very effective and are used at numerous practices. What do you consider to be the ideal relationship between the physicians on the medical staff and the emergency department physicians? Well, that's a very good question, Mark. Uh, I think in, in one thing that, that our group has been successful at, and that is the emergency physicians need to be integrated into the medical staff. There were physicians who went into emergency medicine because they wanted to essentially punch the clock, work their eight hours, and go home, not be involved in any of the medical staff issues, such as quality issues, performance improvement, et cetera. That, I feel, is a a system that's prone to failure as far as the security of the emergency medicine contract. Um, really, we need to be integrated into the medical staff. In fact, emergency physicians are in a great position to become leaders of the medical staff because we interact with everybody on the medical staff. We know every internist, family medicine, surgeon, etc., cetera, um, because we see all of their patients. We're also hospital-based, so there, we're there often. We need to be aligned with the hospital but we also need to be partners with our medical staff colleagues because if they're not happy with the quality of care that we're providing, they're going to go down to the administration, and they should, and tell the administration that we need a different group of physicians in there or different leadership. So really the emergency physicians would behoove themselves to be very involved in the medical staff. Do you see that this relationship between the physicians on the hospital staff and the emergency physicians continue to get closer and closer? Yes, I do. And in fact, some emergency medicine groups are branching out into other hospital-based specialties. There's groups that I'm aware of, including my own, who have radiologists as their partners in the group, or hospitalist practices, 
or occupational medicine practices. So uh, it kind of makes sense for some of the hospital-based specialties to stick together. And I think they all have the common theme that they're not only trying to provide great satisfaction to the administration, but also to the medical staff who, again, are sending them their business, their patients. Uh, they have choices between hospitals, and we want the medical staff to choose our emergency department when they want to send their patient in for an evaluation. I want to thank Dr. Bill Maloney, who has been our guest, discussing current issues in emergency care. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.